The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, tonight we're going to look at George Mueller, and I want to begin. Uh, what is George Mueller known for? What is, what is his claim to fame? The orphanage, right. And George Whitfield also was involved in, in an orphanage, but I must say Mueller did it better. All right. Uh, of course, Whitfield preached better, um, so they each had their strengths. Um, but I want to begin with a description of what it was like to be an orphan in England in the 19th century. How many of you heard of Oliver Twist? Uh, you know that story. That's, uh, that's Dickens. Let me read this to you. What an excellent example of the power of dress young Oliver Twist was. Wrapped in the blanket which had hitherto formed his only covering, he might have been the child of a nobleman or a beggar. It would have been hard for the haughtiest stranger to have fixed his station in society. But now that he was enveloped in the old calico robes which had grown yellow in the same service, he was badged and ticketed and fell into his place at once, a parish child, the orphan of a workhouse, the humble half-starved drudge to be cuffed and buffeted through the world, despised by all, and pitied by none. Oliver cried lustily. If he could have known that he was an orphan, left to the tender mercies of church wardens and overseers, perhaps he would have cried the louder. That's what Dickens said. And he wrote that in 1837, uh, five years after um, Mueller began working with orphans in the same country. So you, you can get a real insight into what it was like to be an orphan in England from Charles Dickens. Um, according to this book, it says the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, which the Times in 1836 attacked as that appalling machine, it said it was a law for wringing the hearts of forlorn widowhood, for refusing crust to famished age, for imprisoning the orphan in workhouse dungeons, and for driving to prostitution the friendless and unprotected girl. So it was a law that forced people off the streets and into various, for example, orphans into workhouses. When Mueller began, uh, there were 3,600 orphans under the care of the state. Many of them were in prison. The rest were in workhouses. Workhouses were little better than prisons. There was absolutely no hope for them, basically. At the end of his life, he personally had cared for over 10,000 orphans, and there were over 100,000 orphans in orphanages in England all over the country, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that a lot of them were well cared for because of the example of George Mueller. So everything had changed uh, as a result of the faith of this one man. Now, when you think of George Mueller, you think of a man of faith. Now, who is God going to raise up to deal with this problem of orphans? Now, what kind of man is he? Now, what kind of faith is it going to take to take on a problem of that magnitude? I want to read my favorite, probably my favorite story about Mueller's faith. Now, I read this story when I was in Japan uh, a number of years ago, and I've been looking for it ever since. You know how you read something in a magazine or whatever and you can't remember where you read it? It stuck with you, but the details are hazy? I found it this morning. So I'm excited to read this to you. I thought I'd just have to tell you hazy details, but it's in this book, George Mueller, Delighted in God by Roger Steer. You can get it at CBD or whatever if you're interested. Uh, but this is a tremendous story. This is from toward the end of his life, or three-quarters of the way through his life. He's 72 years old. And he and his wife were en route to, or uh, let's see, yeah, he and his wife were en route to America 
to do some speaking there, and they had been invited to the White House by President Rutherford B. Hayes. How many of you ever heard of Rutherford B. Hayes? Well, he's not one of the more famous presidents, but he knew of Mueller and his work, and he wanted to invite him to the White House, and he wanted to meet him. So he's a very famous man at this point. Uh, God had done amazing things through him. So he leaves the orphanage um, at Ashley Down. That was the name of their orphanage. And it says, the Mueller set off for the United States in August 1877 aboard, aboard the ship, the Sardinian. They had been allocated the chief officer's deck room for their cabin, which Mrs. Mueller found to be tolerably comfortable. Off Newfoundland, the weather turned cold, and the ship's progress was seriously retarded by fog. Now, in a fog, a ship doesn't move anywhere. I mean, you've heard of the Titanic. It wasn't long after that that the Titanic crashed into an iceberg and sank. So when you get into a dense fog bank, you're not going to move until the fog moves. The captain had been on the bridge for 24 consecutive hours waiting for a slight break in the fog so they could begin moving again. Now imagine what the captain was like after 24 hours of peering into the fog. When all of a sudden something happened which was to revolutionize his life, George Mueller appeared on the bridge. Captain, I have come to tell you I must be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon. Now, I want to tell you something about Mueller. Mueller was Prussian. He was a Prussian, okay? He came from Germany. Anybody who knows anything about Germans, Prussians are the most German of all the Germans, okay? So this guy had an incredible discipline, whatever, and you can imagine how forth forthrightly he says, I must be in Quebec by Saturday. End of story. The captain said, it is quite impossible. Very well, said Mueller. If your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. Now, he's in the middle of the ocean in a dense fog bank. And if what you're telling me is true, then God will find another way. But I've got to be in Quebec by Saturday. I have never broken an engagement for 52 years. Let us go down now into the chart room and pray. The captain wondered which lunatic asylum Mueller had come from. Mr. Mueller, he said, do you know how dense this fog is and how long it's been here? No, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Wow. Mueller then knelt down right there and prayed simply. Now, I thought to myself, what kind of prayer was it? What is a simple prayer? Well, maybe like the prayer Jesus prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead. What is it? Eight or ten words. Father, I thank you that you heard me. I mean, just nothing. There's nothing to the prayer except a simple expression of a heart totally trusting God. So it would be something like, Father, uh, I want to get to Quebec by Saturday. You know why I need to be there. Please move the fog. In Jesus' name, amen. Just something like that. There's nothing to the words, but there's something deep going on there. So he just kneels down and prays simply. And when he had finished, the captain was about to pray. Now, you can imagine how embarrassed he is that this man of faith is down there praying. So he, being a good Christian man kind of thing, wants to add his prayer too. Whereupon, Mueller put his hand on his shoulder and stopped him. First, you do not believe he will. And second, I believe he has. And therefore, there is no need whatsoever, whatsoever for you to pray about it. The captain looked at Mueller in amazement. Captain, he continued, I have known my Lord for 52 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, captain, and open the door, and you will find that the fog has gone. The captain walked across the door and opened it. The fog had indeed lifted. It was the captain who, himself who later told the story of this incident and who was subsequently described by a well-known evangelist as one of the most devoted men he ever knew. I mean, what, what kind of impact would that have on your life to go through something like that? Walk over and open the door and it's gone. You've been waiting for 24 hours and this guy walks in your cab and prays and it's gone. Just like that. Well, what I want to say to you tonight is that kind of faith doesn't come out of nowhere. 
All right, it comes from God, we know that, but it gets built step by step. And it got built by prayer request after prayer request after prayer request being answered, one after another after another. And that's what I want to tell you about tonight, the story of, of Mueller. If you look at your sheet here, I've given you the arithmetic of his faith. Before we get to that, though, I, I came across a verse this morning, and uh, I think it's very powerful. It's in Hebrews 13:7, And it says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And look at this. Imitate their faith. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Imitate their faith. Now, faith is kind of an invisible quality of the character of the soul, isn't it? How do you imitate faith? What are your thoughts on that? How can you imitate faith? What it looks like. Okay, does faith look like something? Okay, it results in obedience. What are some other thoughts on how do we imitate faith? You think about the story of, you remember in, in, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about the paralyzed man who was brought by his friends and they couldn't get close to Jesus, remember? You remember what they did? They dug through the roof, through the tiles, and lowered him, lowered this paralyzed man down right in front of Jesus. And the accounts say, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, you could say Jesus has the ability to see into someone's soul, and he does. But I think that there's something there that the book of Hebrews and, and Jesus, the statement about Jesus is saying the same thing. You can see faith. And James says the same thing. You can see faith by what it does. And George Mueller lived a life of faith, and therefore we can imitate his faith by looking at what he did. What kind of life did he live? What would you have done in that fog bank? Oh, well, I guess I'm going to miss my appointment. That's what you would have said. I know that's what I would have said. He's not going to settle for that. He's going to get on his knees and ask God to move the fog. And God moved the fog. But, uh, oh, there's no doubt about it. And I'm going to explain why. He, he was a very deep thinker, and he was a careful theologian. He wasn't just a careless guy. He can explain why he knew the fog was, go was gone. He made a distinction between the grace of faith and the gift of faith. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Okay? Grace of faith is something that all Christians have all the time in which we should trust God for the things he has written in his word and has promised. And it would therefore be a sin not to believe them. And then there are those things that we don't really know what God's will is. Healings, for example. Praying for healing for somebody. Or for this or for that. But God gives a gift of faith in the middle of that to say, I'm going to do that. Keep praying. I, I believe that God revealed in his heart the fog is gone. You, you know, I, I just think it was that it was that clear and that God has the ability to communicate that kind of thing. Why not? We believe in a God of prophecy, don't we? A God who communicates things that can only be known uh, by miraculous means. And so my feeling is he wanted to do something. My, my personal belief is he wanted to do something in the life of that ship captain. And in our lives, as we hear the account, he didn't need to go talk to the captain. He could pray down in the stateroom, you know, or wherever he was. But he went up to the captain to change the captain's life. And then so many years later, we see, we hear at First Baptist and many others have read this account and say, hmm, do I live like that? Is there something missing from my walk with God? I mean, he wanted to do something there. And, and is it too much to, to imagine that he also imparted to Mueller a confidence that the faith, that the fog had moved? I think it's all part, part and parcel of it. But this is a guy who had time and time. It wasn't, the fog moving was nothing compared to what already happened in his life. We'll talk about that. But just time and time again, he would get on his knees with a specific need and it would get answered probably while he was praying. I mean, literally while still on his knees. That's true. He never took a step. He did not go on those, those um, traveling, speaking tours that he went on at the end of his life without a direct 
sense from God to be there doing such and such. God had given him a work to do. That's right. Look on your sheet there. Um, the Arithmetic of Faith. The, I, have, I have three books that I was working on to prepare this. One I've already showed you, George Mueller, Delighted in God by Roger Steer. This is very readable, really enjoyable. This one by A.T. Pearson was written about 10 years after Mueller died. So it's got an older kind of archaic style, but it's beautiful. There's just so many uh, little tidbits and extra things in there. Uh, George Mueller of Bristol, His Life of Prayer and Faith by A.T. Pearson. And then the autobiography of George Mueller, which is a little disappointing because it's abridged. You can get the unabridged, but it's out of print. You find it in, in some used bookstore somewhere in North America. So you just have to look. Needle in a haystack. Um, but it's not. It's out of print, so you, there's no other way. But so meanwhile, we've got the little paperback, which is grossly abridged. But it's still beautiful as you just read page after page of the kind of things he prayed for and what happened. And uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna read some of those. Uh, actually, let me take a minute right now and read just so you have a sense of what kinds of things he prayed for. February 7th, 1839. This day has been one of the most remarkable days concerning the funds, the money. Realize he's running an orphanage now. What do kids need? Food, clothing, shelter, education. You know, they need to be evangelized. He knew that day after day, but especially those little tummies grumble at a certain time every day, right? Everything he did, he did by faith. What that meant was he made a commitment early on that he would never tell any human being of a financial need, ever. He didn't take a set salary from his church. Um, he never told anyone of a financial need. Never. He just prayed. He told God. And so there would be times he'd be right up at the brink in terms of, of caring for those orphans. All right, and this is what he says. This day has been one of the most remarkable days concerning the funds. Now, when George Mueller says that, you sit up and take notice because it was nothing but remarkable days day after day. There was no money on hand and I was waiting on God. I asked him repeatedly, but no supplies came. The headmaster called to tell me that one pound, two shillings was needed to buy bread for the three houses and to meet other expenses. He then left for Clifton, Clifton to make arrangements to receive the three orphanages of a sister who had passed away on the 4th. Although we had no funds on hand, the work goes on and our confidence is not diminished. I requested him to call on his way back from Clifton to see whether the Lord had sent any money in the meantime. When he returned, I had received nothing, but one of the laborers gave five shillings of his own. At four o'clock, I wondered how the sisters had gotten through the day. I went to the girls' orphan's ha orphan house to meet for prayer and found that a box had come for me from Barnstable. These boxes keep showing up in, which, in um, Mueller's life again and again. The delivery fee was paid, and other, otherwise there would have been no money to pay for it. See how the Lord's hand is in the smallest matters? The box was open, and it contained more than 14 pounds for the orphans in the Bible fund. Just right there. The box appears, there's the money. They go out and buy food, and they can eat that day. That was just one day of 64 years. Time and again, he has these kind of things where he's got no food. He gets on his knees. He's praying. The door. Somebody knocks at the door. Turns out to be this bread delivery guy whose wagon has broken down. Do you have any need for a bunch of loaves? They're going to go stale any other way. Well, yeah, actually we do. And come on, bring him. I mean, he's on his knees. They've got nothing to feed these kids. And so when he stood in that captain's, you know, bridge, that was after years and years of this kind of thing. And that's what I'm saying. Your faith, if you have a strong faith, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from God, definitely. But it comes through experiences, too. It comes through actual uh, answers to prayer. So that was in 1839. That's just one of tons and tons of these kind of entries, one after the other. 
If you look at the arithmetic of his faith, this is at the end of his life, A.T. Pearson just sums up the things that were accomplished by Mueller. He had these day schools. They were basically elementary schools for poor children. Children, Poor children in England in the 19th century did not go to school. They didn't. I mean, there was no mandatory education for them. They were basically refuse in society. Well, he started seven day schools. Number of students at the day school in the 64-year total, 81,501. That's 81,501 little English kids who are affected by George Mueller's life. Amount of money raised for the day schools, 109,992 pounds. Now, realize this is 19th century. So when you're converting, first of all, you can convert British pounds to dollars, but then dollars to modern dollars. So if you're talking 100,000 pounds, you know, you're going to convert it up and then, you know, adjust it by 100 years worth of inflation. All right. Number of Sunday schools in Great Britain, 37. He started 37 Sunday schools. Number of students in the Sunday school uh, Sunday schools over 64 year total, 32,944. The number of Bibles or portions that he circulated, 1,989,266. Amount of money raised for Bible circulation, not bile circulation. Sorry. You should keep your bile to yourself. Don't circulate it. Whatever you do. Uh, Bible circulation. This is what happens when uh, you write all this on Wednesday and you're under immense time pressure. The typos are kind of humorous. So you go ahead and circle them and enjoy them. Um, <laughs> no, it's a real word. Not usually capitalized, but anyway. Uh, 41,090 pounds. Missionaries aided financially. 115 missionaries he supported financially. 115. Amount of money raised to aid them, 261,859 pounds. Circulation of books and tracts, 3,101,338. Now, you wonder about the precision of these things. By the way, I left off the shillings and the half shillings. I didn't want to burden you with that. But this book, I mean, it's down to the shilling. This guy was a Prussian. I'm telling you, every single dot was, I was dotted and T was crossed. He knew where every shilling came from and where it went. All right, total number of orphans at Ashley Downs, 64-year total, 10,029. 10,029. Started with a handful of orphans, and it just grew from there. Amount of money raised for the orphanage, 988,829 pounds. Now, this is amazing. The total amount of money raised and spent by George Mueller in his lifetime, 1,498,000 pounds approximately. He was more precise than that. I didn't add it all up. That's almost $8 million their money. All right, what, is it, what would $8 million be 100 years later? $80 million or more. I mean, $100 million, like Michael Jordan level. I mean, just hundreds of millions of dollars this guy raised by faith, never once told anybody a financial need. Never once. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. All right, When he died, probate court, which goes through your possessions and all that to divide them out by the will, found that he had basically to his name 60 pounds. So you're talking you know, hundreds of dollars that he had. He had given away anonymously, but somebody got onto his code language, given by a, uh, a believer in the Lord uh, to store up treasure in heaven. That's kind of the code he used. Um, and they started going through every entry where it said given by a believer in the Lord to store up treasure in heaven, this kind of thing. Um, over 8,000 pounds, 8,100 pounds of his own personal funds. And he had 60 pounds left at the end of his life. 
I, I guess I look on Mueller as like this clear pipe and just funds just flowed through this guy to all kinds of stuff. And God saw how he dealt with it and just gave him more and more all the time. He didn't accumulate anything for himself. It just flowed. His personal life quote was Psalm 81.10. It's there on the page. Psalm 81.10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. So you get the picture of like a little bird in a nest, a little hungry bird, right? And then the mother bird comes with the worm and just fills that mouth. And how many times did Mueller open his mouth and God fill it? Over and over and over again. Sometimes 10, 15 times in a single day for this or that or the other need. Amazing. He was trusting God for incredible things. And, I, and my feeling is, you know, think of what would happen in our church if people dealt with money the way Mueller did. If, if people had the kind of faith to take on a huge project like Mueller did. I mean, I'd like to see us all as not blocked pipes, but clear pipes and stuff just flowing through us. And not just money, but spiritual gifts and love and scripture and just blessings. You know what I'm talking about? Just no blockage, nothing taken for yourself. Just blessings flowing. And I, I just I think it would be amazing. A uh, quote here, he says, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Well, that's true and, until you start to read some things about Mueller and you start to get an idea of the kind of prayers that God answers. And then this one really convicted me, this quote. Somebody asked him, what was the secret? How could he be this way with the money and all that? And didn't he ever, you know, and, and just the, and he went through trials and difficulties. What was his secret? What was his secret personally? And it said, there was a time, there was a time when I died, utterly died to George Mueller. Now, I've given you ellipsis there. I've, quoted, I've cut out some of the quote. But basically, he said, I died to his interests. I died to his hobbies, to his desires. I died to the way he wanted to spend his time, the way he wanted to spend his money. I died to George Mueller. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved unto God. So he died. There was like a, a funeral that happened for him in his own mind. And from then on, he didn't need or want anything for himself, just only to serve Christ. Wouldn't you love to die that way? What kind of person would you be? You'd be a very happy person. Why? Because anything that came your way for yourself was a gift from God, right from God. You know, even if it was a simple piece of bread and some water to eat. Thank you, God. You know, that kind of gratitude comes from dying to yourself the way he did. Now, if we look at an overview of his life, he was born on September 27, 1805, to a Prussian family in Kroppenstadt near Magdeburg, Germany. So, uh, that sounds pretty Prussian to me. Uh, his father was a tax collector, okay, tax gatherer. He attended school in Hall, uh, received a good uh, education, fairly good education. He had been confirmed and even took communion, but he was not a Christian. In 1821, 1822, we're going to talk a little bit more about his conversion, uh, but he was living deep in sin. He was a terrible sinner. I mean, really a bad, he was, he was a nasty person. Um, and he was in jail, and his father bailed him out. <laughs> And then when he got home, his father beat him. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was a terrible situation. Uh, we'll talk more about that. 1825, he visited a Moravian mission and was soundly converted. It's very interesting, all the ways that the grace of God flows through different things. The Moravians, you've heard of them before. The effect they had on Wesley. Um, the effect that they had um, on world evangelization, on missions. And the effect they had here on, on Mueller. And they had an, uh, an effect on his um, idea of caring for orphans, too, through H. Franck. Uh, who was a pietist writer. 
1820, uh, sorry, he returned to the university uh, to prepare for Christian ministry. In 1826, he began to preach. 1829, he was invited by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to go to England as a missionary to the Jews. In 1830, he became pastor of Ebenezer Chapel at Tainmouth, Derbyshire, England, in connection with the Plymouth Brethren. How many of you ever heard of the Plymouth Brethren? Have you ever heard of Anne Darby? Darby. Okay, Darby's the, fo the foundation of what? Dispensationalism. Have you ever heard of dispensationalism? Ever heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? Thank you, Mac. I thought you might have yours with you. Darby and the Plymouth Brethren started the idea of dispensationalism. Um, Mueller did not buy into it, but he was related to that group. He married Mary Groves October 7, 1831, and then took a key step. We're going to talk more about this, but he abolished pew rents and began to live by faith and prayer, refusing fixed salary from the church. Now, I skipped over one thing. I said that um, Mueller, of all the heroes of the faith that I prepared for, and in all the Bible study, you know, the Acts series that we've done since this whole thing started. This man challenges me more than any of them. Um, it's just very convicting to see the way he lived his life, you know, the way he stepped out in faith, the way he said, I'm not going to take a fixed salary, but I'm just going to trust God to meet my needs, and the way he lived simply. And, you know, that leads you to a simple lifestyle, all right, because God is not necessarily going to be flowing in money for luxuries. And even if God gave him that much money, which he obviously did, 1.5 million pounds worth, he's not going to spend it on himself anyway. So it's a challenge to me. I'm challenged by this man. 1832, he moved to Bristol where he spent the rest of his life working with orphans. He was influenced by reading a biography of that great pietist H. Frank who had started orphans, sorry, orphan homes uh, in Germany. Now, this is, this is what's interesting to me about this. Reading church history and reading biographies affects church history. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You read what the old folks did, you know, 100 years ago or 500 years ago, and you start to think. Say, hmm, maybe we could do something like that. And it begins. That's my hope for this. I'm being very open with you. I want Wednesday nights to affect First Baptist this way. I want you to have a new hero of the faith that you didn't have before. I want you to say, hey, I want to learn more about, about uh, George Mueller. I'd like to go to Barnes & Noble on the, on the webpage and get... Steer's biography and read it. I want to be challenged. I want to. I think God has great things for us to do here in Durham, First Baptist. I want a project like he had. His was orphans. Maybe I'm called to something else. But he got the idea from reading this biography of A.H. Frank, German pietist. And uh, we're going through some biographies here in this class. And I, I'm being very open. I want it to affect your lives. I want you to dream. I want you to have visions. I want you to have faith projects, and I want great things. I want us to be a, a, a garden filled with all kinds of fruit for Christ, however he leads. And it's different every time. Um, he went well beyond what A.H. Frank ever dreamed of. But he got the idea originally from him. 1834, he organized the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad, which someone called a boring name of, an, of a group. And it is a little dull, but there's nothing flashy about it. They didn't know about marketing back then. But um, this was a tremendous... Uh, force for revival and for evangelization in England. Uh, in 1836, he opened a house on Wilson Street as a faith venture for 26 orphan girls. All right, Through faith and prayer, but with no money of his own, other houses, more workers, and an ever-increasing number of orphans came under his care. The project advanced only by faith. No human beings ever told of a financial need, only God alone. 1849, two new orphan homes built at Ashley Down. Over 100 children moved in. So you go from 26 up to 100. 
1866, house number three was completed and house number four was started to accommodate over a thousand orphans. Uh, do you notice the arithmetic here? Going from 26 to 100 to 1,000. And then uh, somewhere in there, I don't know exactly where, um, he wrote an autobiographical account, The Lord's Dealings with George Mueller, five volumes of testimonies of direct answers to prayer. The circulation of these books inspired many to give financially to Mueller and to start works of their own. So they're reading his stories now is what's going on. And they say, I want to I be part of that. They start giving financially. They're interested. And they want to be part of it. In 1875, look at this, number of orphans at Ashley Down reaches 2,000. So we've gone from 26 to 100 to 1,000 to 2,000. Now, in 1875 uh, through to 1892, he began an evangelistic preaching tour with his wife, which lasted 17 years. He went to Europe, America, Asia, Australia. They visited 42 countries, traveled over 200,000 miles. In 1893, he died in Bristol, England. As I mentioned, probate records show his final net worth was about approximately $800, despite having personally handled and distributed about $8 million during his lifetime. All right, that's a quick overview of his life. And nothing all that really thrilling about that, what happens is all the details that got you from 26 orphans to 2,000. How does that happen? How do you buy that first house when it's worth 180 times more than all the money all of you has pooled together? How, do you, how does that happen? And how do you grow? Um, I think as we look at Mueller, we see a 60-year example of persevering faith. First, you look at his conversion. At age nine, Mueller began his life of sin by stealing government, government money his father, a tax collector, had gathered. So he stole tax money. And he wasn't Robin Hood. He wasn't stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. He was stealing from the rich and giving to himself. So he started at age nine. At age 14, living in Prussia, he was busy pursuing his own pleasure. While his mother lay dying, he was out partying and getting drunk with his friends. He was later very ashamed about that. Never really lived it down in his own conscience. He knew that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. But I think he grieved over the fact that he missed his mother's death because he was out getting drunk and running through the streets with his friends at age 14. At age 16, he'd become a liar, a thief, a swindler, and a drunkard. He was arrested and put in jail. His father bailed him out, as I mentioned, and then beat him when he returned home. Mueller began making resolutions to improve, but he never really changed. We've heard that before in church history, haven't we? People who try to do it on their own, they try to reform their life. Jesus covered that, you know. When the evil spirit goes out of a man goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. When he comes back, the house is unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Just reminds me of Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, where the, you've got that room full of dust. Remember? That image we had, and then that, that person's in there sweeping vigorously in the room full of dust. What does that do in a room full of dust? Yeah, you know, just everywhere. That's moral reformation apart from Christ. All right, and then someone comes in in the Bunyan's story and sprinkles water all over the dust, and then the person comes back in and cleans it up. Uh, that water is grace. When the grace of God comes in, you can make some significant changes in your life. Um, but he tried to make moral resolutions and improvements, and nothing ever came of it. Uh, when he got back to the university, he began running up debts he couldn't pay. After squandering his money, he staged a robbery <laughs> uh, to prove that his money had been stolen. Everyone was sympathetic and helped restore the money through their generosity. So what he did was he had his luggage, and he himself broke the lock off, twisted some things up, you know, broke, he broke into his own empty luggage. He had squandered the money on himself, and then they all replenished the money, which he later squandered again. So he was living a, a profligate life, an evil life. Well, suddenly somebody invited him to a, a Bible study, and he said, he, he actually, he was on, this friend was on his way to a Bible study. He said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to a, a Bible study with some pietists. Um, 
uh, he said, well, I'd like to go. He said, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't enjoy that. He said, well, what do they do there? He said, well, they read the Bible and they talk about it and they pray together. He said, I want to go. And he went and he started going and it wasn't long after that that he was converted, soundly converted, convicted of his sin and repented and trusted Christ. I think that small group Bible study is one of the most effective tools for evangelism. You know, I, I'm not saying I don't believe in an in encounter evangelism or a tract that you can lead someone to Christ on an airplane. I think you can and should make every effort. But I've seen lots of people come to Christ who have come for months to ongoing investigative Bible studies. Uh, it's the scripture that converts them. And that's uh, the technique that worked in his life as well. So he came to Christ. Now, I want to talk about his doctrinal convictions, two in particular. One is believer's baptism. He was a Baptist. He believed in believer baptism. And what's interesting about that um, is the story. Uh, he gets to uh, England, and he's a pastor, and he begins talking about baptism. Uh, I like this story. This, the, you know, These are some of these unsung people from church history. Who are these people? We'll find out later. In this case, it's, it's some uh, ladies that are talking to him. Mueller had often spoken against believer's baptism. Now, do you realize that most of the world disagrees with us on believer baptism? Do you know that, folks? I know that we think of ourselves as whatever. We are in the minority when it comes to Christendom on the issue of believer baptism. I mean, think of all the groups that believe in baptizing infants. Like who? Huh? Presbyterians? Methodists? Episcopalians or Anglicans? Catholics, of course. Orthodox? The list goes on and on. And it's just us. All right? So he was speaking against believer baptism. One of the ladies who had been baptized as a believer said, Have you ever read the scriptures and prayed with reference to this subject? No. Then I entreat you never to speak any more about it until you have done so. <laughs> I think that's great. I mean, thoroughly chastened, Mueller made up his mind to examine the subject. Characteristically, he read the New Testament from the beginning, looking particularly at references to the disputed matter. He decided that believers only are the proper subjects for baptism. You know, over and over we see in church history what it is that converts people to baptistic tendencies. It's the New Testament. You just keep reading the New Testament and you say, well, I don't see it. I don't get it. I don't understand the infant Baptist line. You never see any infants getting baptized. You never see any articulation of infant baptism. There's no defense made of it. You have to extrapolate it from principles that are a little bit hard to understand. Where is it? And so he came to baptistic convictions. He was especially struck by Acts 8, 36-38, and Romans 6, 3-5. Sometime afterwards, sometime afterwards, he himself was baptized by his co-worker, Henry Craik, and almost all his friends followed suit thereafter. So he believed in believer baptism. So we can kind of own him as our own, just like with William Carey and uh, Charles Spurgeon and a number of other Baptist heroes. Uh, the other is the issue of the sovereignty of God. Now, I've already hinted at it a little bit with the story of the fog lifting. Do you remember what he said? Yeah, let me, let me read it again. Um, he asked, remember, he said, don't you know how thick this fog is and how long it's been here? Remember what he answered? He said, uh, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on what? On the living God who what? Controls every circumstance of my life. Now, you may ask, how can he come to that conviction? Well, he can come to it scripturally and also through experience. When you get on your knees and you're asking God for some bread for some orphans and a knock comes on the door, you start to get the sense of an immensely involved active God who is sovereign and rules over the smallest things like, like bread carts breaking down right in front of an orphanage when you need it. <clears throat> and you have a lively faith of the sovereignty of God. But that extends even to such difficult topics as election and predestination. <clears throat> That's what he says. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, and final persevering grace. But now I was being, I was brought to examine these precious, precious truths by the word of God, being made willing to have no glory of my own in the conversion of sinners, but to consider myself merely an instrument, and being made willing to receive what the scripture said, I went to the word, reading the New Testament from the beginning with particular reference to these truths. This is the second time he's done this now. He meticulously went through the whole New Testament on the earlier issue, baptism. And now he goes through it on this issue, the issue of election. With my, to my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths. And even those few shortly thereafter, when I had examined and understood them, actually served to confirm me in the above doctrines. As to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I am constrained to state for God's glory that though I am still exceedingly weak and by no means so dead to the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life as I might be and as I ought yet to be, yet by the grace of God I have walked more closely with him since that period. Since what period? Since studying this issue. Since studying this doctrine. My life has not been so variable and I may say that I have lived much more for God than I did before. So, I mean, we've seen the same thing in Edwards. We've seen the same thing in Whitfield consistently, the uh, doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And you have to believe this to do the kind of things he did. He was constantly relying on God for all things. And I think it's a, it's a remarkable thing. Now, as we look at his commitment to live by faith, let's talk about what happened to him. He, was, he had just gotten married. And this is so key, okay? You know, talk about, you know, patterns that get set early in your married life. And one of the issues is how are you going to live with finances, right? What are you going to do with money? At what level will you live, right? And this is a big issue. Well, they, he was a pastor of a small church in England, Tainmouth, England. And uh, he, they had a system there called pew rents. Do you know what pew rents are? Basically, families would rent a pew and you would pay pew money. And that's, that supported the ministry. The problem was that it was weighted toward wealthier people. The wealthier were, the better seat you got. Right? And that's a problem, isn't it? Because you look at the book of James, for example. What does the book of James say about that? Don't do it. Right. Suppose a rich man comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man with shabby clothes also comes in. If you say to the rich man, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, sit over there by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he said, we've got to get rid of this pew rent thing. And while we're at it, why don't we just do it this way? We'll put a box at the back of the church. And anyone who wants to support this ministry, what does this ministry mean? Well, me. All right? Anyone who wants to see that I have something to eat and a place to live. And the other things that the church does was a small church. We're talking of 100 people. Just put the money in the box, in the back of the box. The box had a lock on it, and that's where it was. He had also made a commitment with his wife. The two of them were in total agreement on this. They prayed about it. This is what they were going to do. Not only were they going to refuse a fixed salary, but they were never going to mention to anyone a financial need ever again. And that included opening the locked box. Do you know what I'm talking about? The box is where all their money is. That's where if you wanted to support the ministry, you put the money in the box. Mueller and his wife are never going to ask the deacons to open the box. He didn't open it, and he didn't ask anyone to open it. If he had a need, what would he do? He'd ask God. And I'm telling you, at least four or five times in that first year, deacons couldn't sleep all night and didn't know why. 
and they'd wait, you know, in the morning, you know, they, what is it? And then something would hit them, the box. And they'd go and open it and find some pounds in there or whatever and bring it to Mueller and they could eat the next day. And what do you think Mueller was doing while the deacon couldn't sleep all night? He was on his knees all night saying, we need something to eat. <laughs> and, and what does that do? I mean, you get the same result. Your stomach is filled, but your faith has grown. You see, your faith has grown. You got on your knees with your need and God met the need. You didn't go tell the deacon. God told the deacon. And then the deacon opened that box and met the need. Commitment to live by faith. And what's so interesting is, what's so interesting is that he took the same principle and applied it the rest of his life to bigger and bigger and bigger things all the time. Remember what Jesus said? Go ahead. Always praying in God's will. I mean, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, he had rules about prayer and they were scriptural. You pray according to God's will. And you realize the things he's trusting God for weren't for himself for the most part. They were for his basic needs, but there's scripture on that, isn't there? If we have food and clothing, we'll be happy with that, content with that. God has promised in Matthew chapter 6 to feed us. Why do you worry about food? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus is persuading us not to be anxious about food. And why do you worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin. Isn't that a promise that I'll care for your basic needs? Well, he thought it was. And so he just, he would pray for his own basic needs. But the rest of his prayers were for others. And they were based on scriptural promises. Now, so far we've told about all these triumphs. Mueller had suffering too. He had difficult things in his life as well. Uh, he had hard things he had to trust God for. One of them was in 1853, Lydia, his only child, was struck with typhoid fever. Now, back in 1853, you get typhoid. It's curtains, probably. I mean, it's very, very difficult to survive from that. Uh, she came to the brink of death, but through the prayers of many she was spared. Mueller's description of this trial is full of wisdom and faith. This is what it says. This quote from Mueller. While I was in this affliction, this great affliction, besides being at peace, so far as the Lord's dispensation was concerned, I also felt perfectly at peace with regard to the cause of the affliction. Once on a former occasion, the hand of the Lord was heavily laid on me and my family. I had not the least hesitation in knowing that it was the Father's rod applied in infinite wisdom and love for the restoration of my soul from a state of lukewarmness. At this time, however, I had no such feeling. Conscious as I was of manifold weaknesses, failings, and shortcomings, so that I too would be ready to say with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, yet I was assured that this affliction was not upon me in the way of the fatherly rod, but for the trial of my faith. Parents know what an only child, a beloved child is, and what to believing parents an only child, a believing child must be. Well, the Father in heaven said, as it were, by this his dispensation, Art thou willing to give up this child to me? My heart responded, As it seems good to thee, my heavenly Father, thy will be done. But as our hearts were made willing to give back our beloved child to him who had given uh, to her to us, so he was ready to leave her to us, and she lived. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Psalm 37.4 The desires of my heart were to retain the beloved daughter, if it were the will of God, the means to retain her were to be satisfied with the will of the Lord. Of all the trials of faith that as yet I have had to pass through, this was the greatest. And by God's abundant mercy, I own it to his praise. I was enabled to delight myself in the will of God, for I felt perfectly sure that if the Lord took his beloved daughter, it would be best for her parents, best for herself, and more for the glory of God than if she lived. Do you see that confident faith? 
in a good father who's sovereign and rules over all things for his kingdom and his glory and the good of his people. It would be best for us, best for her, and best for his kingdom and his glory if he took her. And since he let her live, then it was best for the parents, best for her, and best for the kingdom to let her live. That sets you up for either, doesn't it? You're able to accept either one. Now, you could say, it's easy to talk this way. He got the daughter back, right? It's a good ending. You can be philosophical and kind of mature when you get the daughter back. Well, he did the same thing when his wife died. On February 6, 1870, George Mueller's wife, Mary, died of rheumatic fever. They'd been married 39 years and four months. He was 64 years old. Shortly after the funeral, he was strong enough to preach a funeral sermon, as he called it. He preached for her. What text would he choose when God had taken back his best beloved? He chose Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. And these were his three points. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me to begin with. The Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. And the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Now, he didn't get her back. She died. But it's the same approach that he took in both cases. And under this third point, he recounts how he prayed for her during her illness. Yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou will do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise up yet again my precious wife. Thou art able to do it, though she is so ill. But howsoever thou dealest with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with thy holy will. So it wasn't all celebrations for him. I mean, she died. But it was the same faith that brought him through that trial and that difficulty. Now, what kind of spiritual lessons can we take from Mueller's life? The first I'd like to talk to you about is daily habits. I can say to you, as a minister of the Word and just from Scripture, you cannot grow as a Christian if you neglect the Word of God and private prayer. It is impossible. You will not grow. And as a matter of fact, you will not stay where you were. You will regress. You will slide back. It's a dynamic thing. So when you start to neglect private prayer and personal devotion in the Word, you will slide back in your Christian walk. Can you all testify to that? Do you know what I'm talking about? It is true. It is an unbreakable rule. Furthermore, I think you cannot grow if you're not in a good Christian fellowship, a good church where the Word of God is being preached, where there are brothers and sisters holding you accountable, where the ordinances are being done properly. You can't grow unless you're involved in a church like that. Well, Mueller knew that. One of the interesting things here, and I learned this, I mean, this is a phenomenal truth that I got. I got from Piper Desiring God, but it's Mueller. And he's talking about the role of the Word of God in his life. Now, when you think of Mueller, you think of him first and foremost as a man of what? Prayer, faith and prayer, right? But he would say first and foremost, if you're talking about the means of grace, he was a man of the word before everything. Because all of his prayer came up out of the word, didn't it? Flowed up out of the word. And this is what he says. <clears throat> and this, is, uh, this has affected my life very greatly. And I, think, I hope it will affect your quiet times. While I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, irrespective of human instrumentality, as far as I know, the benefit of which I have not lost, though now for more than 40 years have since passed away. In other words, I learned something and God didn't use a human being to teach me. I just discovered it. God taught it to me directly. And 40 years have passed since I learned this and it's affected me. The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in God. 
Now that seems a little strange, doesn't it? That seems a little what? A little selfish, right? But this was not a selfish man. I mean, this guy was a clear, unblocked pipe. Stuff flowing through him to others. And he said, my first business when the sun comes up is to find a way that I may get my soul happy in God. Is that very different than rejoice in the Lord always? I say it again, rejoice. I don't think it's different at all. It's the very thing we're commanded to do. But apparently it takes some work. And for some of us, it's harder than others. I mean, some of you are morning people and some of you aren't. Do you have to labor to get your soul happy in God in the morning? Maybe you wake up with a song in your heart. I don't know. But he had to labor to get his soul happy in God. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And do you see why this is? The other approach says, I have all I need. I'm sufficient. I'm full. I'm going to go out out of my fullness and minister. You see? Is that true of us? Are we not rather empty vessels that God needs to fill up? And then out of his filling us up, we then go and minister to others? I think it's really the other way that's arrogant. I don't need God. I don't need anything. I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient. I'm going to go bless all these people. I'm going to go bless the orphans today. I'm going to go bless everybody. He wasn't that way at all. He said, I'm not going to be a blessing to anybody unless God blesses me first. Unless God brings me into that sense of his pleasure again. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world, and yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. Before this time, my practice had been, and this is what changed me right here, this paragraph. Before this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, as an habitual thing to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself first to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it, that my heart thus might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, whilst meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning early in the morning. The first thing I did after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon His precious Word was to begin to meditate on the Word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it, not for the sake of the public ministry of the Word, not for the sake of preaching on, which I had, on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a few minutes, very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself immediately to prayer but to meditation, yet it turned eventually, immediately, more or less into prayer. So what is he doing? He's sitting there working over verse by verse of Scripture. He's feeding himself on the Word of God. Is this not biblical? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's going over this. Amazing. Now you might say, but I'm too busy. I'm giving you the whole quote here. Okay? You can take this home, cut it out, and put it on your wall, you too busy people. Okay? Two of you have already heard this today. You can hear it again. The first three years after conversion, I neglected the Word of God. Since I began to search it diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. Listen to this. I have read the Bible through 100 times. Now, you stop and think. Have any of you read through the Bible in a year? Have you ever done that? Read, read through the Bible. Is that easy or hard to do? That's a good, solid pace, isn't it? Three or four pages every day. Every day. Every day. Can't miss one. You miss one, now you need to do eight the next day. Right? <laughs> 
I mean, that's a heavy pace. He, by the time when he had written this, he had only been a Christian less than 50 years, I would guess. So that's twice a year. Every six months, he's reading through the Bible. That's eight pages a day, approximately. And how did he read it? Well, I already read to you the way he... He's meditating. He's chewing on each... I mean, well, how much time did he give to this? Apparently a lot. hundred times, and always with increasing delight. I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the Word of God. Friends often say, I have so much to do, so many people to see. I cannot find time for Scripture study. Perhaps there are not many who have more to do than I. For I have more than, for more than half a century, I have never known one day when I have not, when I have had not more business than I could get through. For 40 years, I have had annually, look at this, about 30,000 letters. And most of these pass through my own hands. I have nine assistants always at work, corresponding in German, French, English, Danish, Italian, Russian, and other languages. Then, as pastor of a church with 1,200 believers, whew, great has been my care. Don't you imagine it was? And then it says, besides, I've had charge of five immense orphanages with as many as 2,000 orphans in it. Also, at my publishing depot, the printing and circulating of millions of tracts, books, and Bibles. But I've always made it a rule never to begin work till I've had a good season with God. The vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Word in our life and thoughts. Number two, persevering prayer. George Mueller recorded over 50,000 specific answers to prayer. 50,000 specific answers to prayer. 50,000. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's like so-and-so prayed for money and two pounds, five shillings was brought, you know, at the knock of a door or something like that. I mean, that kind of specific, 50,000. Mueller gave a sermon on prayer. I'm not going to go through it right now. It's not predictable, although it does, it does say one thing. He say, we must wait on the blessing until God grants it. The promises are clear, but they say nothing about time frame. Isn't that true? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the... There's nothing in there about how long it will take, right? So you should keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking until you get it, right? Some have said to him, why should I pray twice, three times, five times, ten times for the same thing? He would say, you might just as well ask, why should I pray the first time? For God knows what we need before we ask, right? So apparently there's a benefit in us asking for it, even though God already knows. Well, if there's a benefit in once, is there a benefit in twice asking? How about five times? How about ten? Yes, yes, yes. Keep praying until he gives it to you or convicts you to stop praying. And he said, I am now, in 1864, waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily besought him for 19 years and six months without one day's intermission. Now, this guy was a Prussian. I'm telling you, 19 years, six months, not a single day did he miss praying for the salvation of a certain group of people he was praying for. He was praying for salvation. Still, the full answer is not yet given concerning the conversion of certain individuals. In the meantime, I have received many thousands of answers to prayer. I have also prayed daily without intermission for the conversion of other individuals for about 10 years, for others about 6 or 7 years, for others 4, 3, and 2 years, for others about 18 months. Still, the answer is not yet granted concerning these persons. Yet, I am daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answers. Be encouraged, dear Christian reader, with fresh earnestness to give yourself to prayer. If only you can be sure that you ask for things which are for the glory of God. And Pearson testifies, he went and hunted down two of the people that he'd been praying for for 60 years. They were not converted when Muller died. Pearson's writing 11 years later, both of them had come to faith in Christ, after Muller died. And Muller, theologically, he said, I believe 
that God would convert them because he gave me the sustaining grace to keep praying for them for 60 years. Where else would that come from? And so he believed it was in God's will for him to pray for the conversion of these folks. Where else would that sustaining prayer come from? And so he kept praying, and God granted it only after he was dead. <clears throat> uh, I've given you the Muller on discerning the will of God. You can read that uh, for yourself. The one last thing I gave you here is the grace of faith versus the gift of faith. We'll stop with that. I've already alluded to it, but this is how it works. The grace of faith is basically faith given to all Christians. Without faith, you're not a Christian, right? You're justified by faith. And it extends beyond that to trusting God for everything that he's clearly revealed in the written word. Anything in here that's a promise from God, you can claim as a Christian. And as a matter of fact, Muller goes beyond that to say, if you don't claim it and don't trust God for it, you are sinning through unbelief. You see what I'm saying? You're sinning through unbelief because God has clearly revealed in Scripture that he wants these things for you. You should trust God for them. And there's many. That's the grace of faith. The gift of faith is given in a specific situation where God seems to, in a supernatural way, communicate his will about something that could go either way that there's no testimony about in Scripture, like the lifting of a fog so you can get to a meeting. And God can give you, in the midst of that situation, an incredible confidence that God's going to do X, Y, or Z. And you, based on that, you act a certain way and step out in faith. You see the difference between the grace of I think it's a valid distinction. And I see both of them in Scripture. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, any questions about Mueller? Are you challenged by this? I don't know of anybody like this. I think there are people similar to it. You know, Bill Bright, who started Campus Crusade for Christ, he says that faith is like a muscle. You keep strengthening it by using it, by stepping out in faith and trusting him for things. And folks, I want to see us do that. I want you to dream. I want you to say, what am I trusting God for in the year 2001? What am I trusting God for that only he can give? And if your answer is nothing, then get on your knees and get a faith burden, something that he's leading you to do. Why don't we close in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.